Hello, my name is Dr. W. David Clark and I am a clinical associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine at Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. I work primarily on the inpatient palliative care service at University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today about a topic that is relevant to anyone involved in the care of demented patients. I have no financial interests or relationships to disclose for this presentation today. My objectives today are as listed. I would briefly like to review the technical aspects of percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy, otherwise known as a PEG tube placement, summarize current recommendations for tube nutrition in advanced dementia, discuss meaningful informed consent provided to surrogate decision makers considering PEG placement in demented patients, and discuss the role of advanced care planning in facilitating decisions regarding tube nutrition. When people ask what I do as a palliative physician, I tell them that I spend my day having conversations with patients. These conversations involve clarifying goals of care and offering support in the five domains of suffering, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, and practical. In medicine, we do a lot of data dumping but not necessarily communicating effectively. That's why this quote from George Bernard Shaw is one of my favorites. This quote is from Pat Summit. Pat Summit holds the record for most all-time wins for a coach in NCAA basketball history, men's or women's teams, in any division. She holds eight NCAA national championships, second only to John Wooden. She retired in August 2011, three months after being diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's dementia at age 59. Behind every case of dementia, there is a story. Alzheimer's dementia is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. One in nine people over age 65 have Alzheimer's dementia. And by age 85, one in three will have Alzheimer's dementia. The cost of Alzheimer's dementia to the nation is significant. $226 billion is the annual estimated cost for 2015. That number, by 2050, is estimated to be $1.1 trillion. Iowa has the third highest Alzheimer's death rate in the United States. In 2009, 47% of nursing home residents in Iowa had moderate to severe cognitive impairment. All dementias are not Alzheimer's dementia. However, all are progressive over time. I have listed for you six irreversible 
dementias. I would like to discuss a very important article from the New England Journal of Medicine from 2009. The recruitment period for patients covered four and a half years. 323 nursing home residents with advanced dementia, along with their health care proxies, were followed in 22 nursing homes, each resident for 18 months. The average age was 85.3 years, and 85% of the patients were female. Of the dementias that were followed, 72.4% were Alzheimer's, 17% were vascular, and 12.7% were in a category other than those two. At the end of 18 months of enrollment, the mortality was 54.8%. Note that the expectation of the proxies for comfort were high. 96% of the proxies believed that comfort was the primary goal of care. However, communication regarding the disease was lacking. Only 18% of proxies had received prognostic information from a physician. 32.5% said a physician had counseled them on complications to expect in advanced dementia. The adjusted six-month mortality for these three subsets shows the significant fragility of these patients and were associated with a worse outcome. One episode of pneumonia translated to a six-month mortality of approximately 47%. A febrile episode was associated with a six-month mortality of 44.5%. History of eating problems translated to a six-month mortality of approximately 37%. The main learning point of this study is to establish that advanced dementia is a terminal condition. Advanced dementia is a time of significant suffering, as was pointed out in this study. Note that dyspnea lasting greater than five days per month occurred in 46% of patients, pain greater than five days per month in 39%, pressure ulcers at a level of stage two or higher in approximately 39%, agitation in approximately 54%, and aspiration in approximately 41%. Recall in several slides previously that 96% of the proxies thought that the primary goal of care was comfort. The one article most relevant to this presentation today is from the Journal of the American Medical Association, 1999, by Finnecan and colleagues. Their article was entitled, Tube Feedings in Patients with Advanced Dementia. They reviewed the literature from 1966 to 1999, a total of 33 years, to see if tube feedings were correlated with any positive outcomes. This is the summary of the conclusions from their article. 
They found no evidence that tube feedings prevented aspiration pneumonia. Any evidence of perceived caloric advantages were outweighed by the adverse effects of tube feeding. There was no evidence of prolonged survival in demented patients with dysphagia. There was no evidence of pressure sores being prevented or improved by tube feedings. There was no evidence of functional decline mitigated or functional status improved with the use of tube feedings. And tube feedings were not associated with any evidence of enhanced comfort. This diagram is presented to help all of the learners understand how a PEG tube is placed. Again, recall that PEG, the acronym PEG, P-E-G, stands for percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy. An endoscope is a lighted flexible tube passed to the stomach. The endoscope is pressed against the stomach and the bright light seen externally serves as a marker for the surgeon to make a small abdominal wall incision through which a gastrostomy tube is passed. The gastrostomy tube is then anchored into place internally and externally. This Scandinavian study prospectively followed patients over a period of four and a half years from June 2005 through November 2009 for six predefined post-procedural complications, leakage, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain, fever, and peristomal infection. They were also assessed for mortality. All patients who had a PEG tube inserted in the hospital during the study period were included. The indications for PEG tube were under two primary categories. First were patients with tumors, making up 44% of the study group. Of those patients, head and neck cancer patients and patients with either gastric or esophageal cancer were the primary patients. The second category was neurological disorders, which made up 45%. Those included patients with stroke and also patients with neurological disease other than stroke. Dementia patients made up 2% of the cohort. 18% of the patients died within two months of PEG insertion. It should be noted that the deaths were not necessarily related directly to PEG insertion, but most likely reflected the severity of illness in this group of patients. Complications at two months after the procedure included 10% of patients with diarrhea, 8% of patients with leakage, 6% of patients with peristomal infection, and 1% of patients with fever. Inadvertent tube removal can occur before or after the surgically created tube tract has matured. This slide represents management of this event in patients with a mature tract. The event typically occurs in combative or confused patients. A PEG tube tract requires approximately four weeks to mature. 
If the tract is mature and the tube is dislodged or removed, a Foley catheter or replacement tube can be reinserted. It is important to remember that the tract will begin to close within 24 hours, so it's important to get the tube in in a timely fashion. This slide represents the management of inadvertent tube removal when the tract is immature. In this situation, tube replacement becomes technically more challenging. It is important that the surrogate decision makers know that early tube removal has more complications. In this clinical scenario, the PEG tract is allowed to heal. A new PEG tube can be placed in a few days at a different site. Replacement of the tube will require another endoscopy. IV antibiotics are administered for a minimum of seven days and the patient is observed for signs of peritonitis. This slide shows a pneumoperitoneum, which is free air in the abdominal cavity. It can be seen in this area here and across here. In one study of 65 patients, chest x-rays were taken within three hours of PEG placement. Pneumoperitoneum was present in 13. In 10 of 13 patients, the air was gone within 72 hours, and in the other three, its persistence had no clinical significance. The main thing to remember about this condition is that the air could be mistaken for ruptured abdominal viscous if the clinical picture suggested that possibility. This is buried bumper syndrome. This is a long-term consequence of the external bolster being too tight to the abdominal wall. The internal bolster slowly erodes into the gastric wall. This condition might present with abdominal pain, lengthening of the tube, and or problems with infusion. There are various techniques to deal with the problem depending upon the type of gastrostomy too. Pressure necrosis can occur if the buried bolster is neglected. These photos show several cases of necrosis. The PEG tube was first introduced in 1980 as a way to deliver nutrition to critically ill children. The intent was to provide a bridge to a goal of improved nutrition. As often happens with new technology, its application was expanded to the adult population. And in the case of demented patients, without research to support its use. In medicine, we are hopefully always looking for bridges to recovery, bridges that help patients get across a particular medical crisis. We want to avoid traps of suffering. These are two word pictures that I frequently use in my work as I try to understand the goals of care for patients and as I have discussions with patients and with families.
there has been a persistent tenfold difference geographically in the United States from the lowest to the highest utilization of PEG tubes for patients with advanced dementia. This slide from an article by Tenno and colleagues in the Journal of the American Medical Association from 2002 reflects this difference. Clearly, expectations of what PEG nutrition will do for loved ones vary from one population to another. Ultimately, effective communication is at the heart of good outcomes. I tell my learners that when things go well, it's communication. When things don't go well, it's also usually because of communication. This 2001 study from Archives of Internal Medicine looked at the adequacy of informed consent for feeding gastrostomy. This one-year retrospective review of 154 patients was done at a 649-bed community teaching hospital in South Carolina. Every physician progress note was reviewed. The four categories of illness included acute stroke, chronic dementia, other neurological conditions, and non-neurologic conditions with failure to thrive. A direct quote from the study is as follows. We considered any documented discussion of specific benefits and burdens of and alternatives to tube feeding, however brief, to constitute adequate informed consent. Adequate discussion was documented in only one of 154 patients. Advanced directives were available in approximately 7% of the patients reviewed. Approximately 8% of the patients gave their own permission for the procedure to be performed. 22% of the time, permission was given by a surrogate by telephone rather than face-to-face. -face. Nearly all surrogate family members lived in close proximity to the medical center. There may have been previous discussions that made the surrogate comfortable to give consent in this way over the phone, but those discussions were not documented. The in-hospital mortality for this group of patients was almost 17%. The 30-day mortality was almost 32%, and the one-year mortality for this group of patients was 50%. Think about that for just a moment. There was only one documented informed consent discussion for procedure in which 50% of the patients were dead within a year. A learning point from this study is that assigned consent for procedure is not an informed discussion. The article summarized the typical sequence of events that was identified in these cases. The progress note documented dysphagia, aspiration, 
or inadequate energy intake in a patient unable or unwilling to swallow. Somewhere in the progress notes, there would be a subsequent comment such as, quote, may need gastrostomy tube, end quote. A swallowing study would then be ordered and would confirm dysphagia and or aspiration. A consultant would then see the patient, agree with gastrostomy, and the procedure would move ahead. The reviewers of the records made note of this sense of inevitability that seemed to be a part of the whole process. There are system incentives for doing a procedure rather than having the tough conversations with decision makers. Clinicians find the presence of a procedure as something to do when the prognosis is poor. There are financial incentives for the proceduralists, for the hospitals, and for the nursing homes who take these patients. The institutions desire to avoid any sanctions or any liability that might be associated with a perception that the patient was not given maximal care. This is a slide that summarizes information from a study of 1,057 nursing homes in six states that looked at patients 65 years of age and older who had a feeding tube placed for advanced cognitive impairment. Higher percentage of patients with tube feedings was associated with the following. More full-time speech therapists on staff. More licensed nurses rather than nursing assistants larger facility, a higher proportion of Medicaid beds, an absence of Alzheimer's units, which typically have higher staff-to-patient ratios, a higher proportion of patients having pressure ulcers in greater than 10% of residents, a higher proportion of residents without advanced directives, and a higher proportion of residents with total functional dependency. So what are these that we are looking at? These are hand mitts. These are frequently used to prevent patients from grabbing and dislodging tubes. It is estimated that greater than 70% of demented patients with feeding tubes are restrained. There are various types of restraints which include mitts, wraps, pillow immobilization, and excess padding. Restraining can cause social deprivation because the patient has less opportunity to have direct skin-to-skin -skin and tactile contact with loved ones, with family members, and with caregivers. They can also increase sensory deprivation as the patient is less aware of their environment. Physical restraints are associated with increased agitation and distress. And sometimes out of desperation, chemical restraints may be utilized 
in order to protect the tubes. The word feeding can be a trap word. Outside of medicine, the word feeding implies a socializing experience which includes the pleasure of choosing and tasting food. Personally, I never use the words feeding and tube in the same sentence. The phrase mechanical delivery of nutritional formula through a tube is a more accurate description of tube enteral nutrition. What have various societies and deliberative bodies said on the topic of tube nutrition in advanced dementia? The American Board of Internal Medicine Choosing Wisely campaign is a multi-year effort to encourage physician leadership in reducing harmful or inappropriate resource utilization. Medical societies are asked to identify five tests or procedures commonly used in their field, the routine use of which should be questioned by both physicians and patients based on the evidence that the test or procedure is ineffective or even harmful. The American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, AAHPM, agreed to participate in the campaign. The AAHPM Choosing Wisely Task Force with input from the AAHPM membership, developed the following five recommendations. I have bolded the first recommendation because of its relevance to this presentation today. The American Geriatric Society released its most recent recommendations in August 2014. I'm going to read through all of the recommendations. Percutaneous feeding tubes are not recommended for older adults with advanced dementia. Careful hand feeding should be offered. Efficacy is at least as good as tube feedings for outcomes of death, aspiration pneumonia, functional status, and comfort. Tube feeding is associated with agitation, increased use of physical and chemical restraints, and worsening pressure ulcers. Efforts to enhance oral feeding by altering the environment and creating individual centered approaches to feeding should be part of usual care for older adults with advanced dementia. Tube feeding is a medical therapy that an individual's surrogate decision maker can decline or accept in accordance with advanced directives, previously stated wishes, or what is thought the individual would want. It is the responsibility of all members of the healthcare team caring for residents in long-term care settings to understand any previously expressed wishes of the individual through review of advanced directives and with surrogate caregivers regarding tube feeding and incorporate these wishes into the care plan. Institutions such as hospitals, nursing homes, and other care settings should promote choice, endorse shared and informed decision-making, and honor individuals' preferences regarding tube feeding. They should not impose obligations or exert pressure on individuals or providers to institute tube feedings.
Some families and physicians continue to opt for artificial nutrition because the decision to place a feeding tube is a moral one and not a scientific one. Part of our job is to help families and caregivers carefully consider alternatives that will be acceptable to them. We should understand that nutrition is symbolic of caring. It is part of comfort and is part of nurturing. Many people carry a fear of starvation. Medically, starvation is the result of a severe or total lack of nutrients needed for the maintenance of life. What's important to point out and to remember is that dementia is the underlying cause of the progressive loss of nutrients. Artificially administering calories will not reverse the underlying dementia. Some families and some caregivers persist in a belief that quality of life is enhanced by the presence of tube feeding. And I think that all that has been presented in the previous slides gives evidence that that is not the case. Although not referenced as part of the article that is cited below, personal religious beliefs often play a role in families deciding to proceed with the insertion of a peg tube. And certainly these views need to be respected. This slide gives information from a study that was reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, 1994. This information may be helpful as we have discussions with families and caregivers. In this study, only patients who could consistently express their needs were included. 31 of the 32 patients had cancer. All of the patients had a prognosis of three months or less and the mean length of stay on the unit was 40 days. The patients were queried on hunger and thirst several times a day. Food and fluids was offered to all patients and was ingested as they desired. 63% of patients had no hunger at admission and only one patient had hunger at the time of death. No patient consistently consumed greater than 25% of their calculated daily fluid or caloric requirements. 38% of patients were experiencing either thirst or dry mouth at death, but in all patients, this was adequately relieved with mouth care and with ice chips. Comfort eating recognizes that eating has pleasures of flavor, aroma, and association with past life experience. Eating is seen as pleasurable for patients, and we don't want to deny them that pleasure. It is labor-intensive, typically taking 45 to 90 minutes a day so insufficient staff at a facility can be a barrier to instituting comfort eating. Strict 
calorie counting is a medical approach. Part of comfort care is demedicalizing care and focusing on the patient and comfort eating is a part of that process. Comfort eating enhances socialization with the patient. It is helpful to put in a formal order for comfort feeding only to eliminate any perceived care versus no care patient dichotomy. I think that we have established that in advanced dementia we face some difficult decisions. Ultimately, ethics is doing the right thing, all things considered. This slide demonstrates the balance of those things that we need to consider. We need to look at the relationship amongst individuals. We need to be sensitive to the values and the cultural influences that are at play. And we need to be knowledgeable of the laws, rules, regulations, and code of conduct that can be applicable to the particular clinical scenario. There are a number of legal principles to keep in mind as we have discussions about tube nutrition in advanced dementia. These are principles that have been established through the courts. Artificial nutrition and hydration are indistinguishable from other life-sustaining therapy. Ordinary care versus extraordinary care are meaningless distinctions. Providing artificial nutritional support is no more basic than dialysis or oxygen delivery. The decision to withdraw or withhold nutritional therapy is no different than decision to start it. The right to consent to medical treatment is meaningless without the right to refuse medical treatment. In making the final decision regarding PEG2 placement, a quality goals of care discussion centers around what the patient would want in the current situation if he or she could speak. In the end, it is about hearing the patient's voice as best as we can. It is important to have an informed discussion with the surrogate decision makers. The risks and benefits of PEG tube placement should be reviewed carefully and clearly, and alternative care options reviewed as well. If the patient has documented their personal wishes, those should be honored. Or, as much as possible, they should be elicited through the surrogate decision maker. How can we minimize the uncertainty in care of patients with advanced dementia? We can do that by having good advanced care planning. The single most important document for all adults to have in preparation for these types of discussions is the healthcare power of attorney.
The healthcare power of attorney is the person that has been designated by the patient to legally speak for the patient. Obviously, this document is prepared months to years in advance of the diagnosis of dementia. The power of attorney for healthcare should speak the patient's voice. The power of attorney for healthcare is able to accommodate to the dynamics of healthcare because things can change dramatically from day to day. This document is activated when the patient is non-decisional or if the patient knowingly and voluntarily transfers decision-making to the power of attorney for health care. Another document to be aware of is the living will. This document serves as the patient's guide to surrogate decision-makers and to clinicians. It is much more helpful as a document if specific directives are provided. It is important to understand, however, that this is a static document. It is a document that is signed at a point in time with expressions of the desire of the patient given at a point in time. The power of attorney for healthcare document allows for more flexibility as decisions are being made minute by minute, hour by hour, and day by day. The Iowa Bar Association Living Will Template is available online and I would encourage you to review it. Notice in the document that much of the language seems vague. Words such as incurable or irreversible condition, death within a relatively short period of time, reasonable degree of medical certainty, these are words and phrases that are open to interpretation and different clinicians may interpret the clinical situation differently than other clinicians. This can be confusing for families as well as for clinicians. The document is much more robust if there are specifics that are included. Note the last sentence, part of which is in red. This declaration is subject to any specific instructions or statement of desires I have added in additional provisions below. The living will document allows for the patient to add very specific language regarding their specific wishes. This can be very helpful, although unfortunately most of the time it has not been included in the document. If you have already taken care of advanced care planning, that is, if you have both a power of attorney for healthcare document and a living will document, you have chosen wisely. I would like to emphasize again that the power of attorney for healthcare document is the document that is most helpful for other people to make decisions on your behalf if you cannot speak for yourself. In summary, advanced dementia has a very poor prognosis. 
Consensus among experts is that PEG-2 placement in advanced dementia is not beneficial. An informed conversation with family members or surrogate decision makers can clarify expectations, but is often omitted. Completion of advanced care planning documents should be encouraged for all patients with decision-making capacity. Thank you for the opportunity for me to share this information with you today.